Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. As you're turning there, I'm just going to uh, give a little intro. Prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is the means by which sinful beings, that's all of us, communicate with a holy God. And when you think about it, it's a very strange thing because it's like you or I communicating with a flea. It just doesn't make sense. The difference between our mind and God's mind is immeasurable, yet God desires communication with us. You see, God is our loving Father. And just like all parents, or as I'm finding out, grandparents, they long for communion and communication. They long for that. So our Heavenly Father longs for that. In Proverbs 15, the last part of verse 8, it says the prayer of the upright is his delight. See, he delights when we come to him. He delights when we, when we cry out to him. And he's waiting for us. He's waiting for us to communicate with him. He delights in such communication. Intimacy. We would call it intimacy with God. And that might be a foreign thing to many of us. Maybe we were raised in a religious culture where God was considered far off, untouchable, behind a veil, and unapproachable. I know for me, I never saw my relationship with God as an intimate, personal thing. I'm here to tell you today that God wants something deeper for us and from us. He wants a more intimate relationship with us. And the Scripture backs this up. In Romans 8, verse 15, Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That's a very intimate name for our Lord, Abba. It's like Daddy. It's like Daddy. We are adopted as when we, when we believe in Christ, we are adopted into that family. And now He is our Abba Father. And as we would expect, the Bible has a lot to say about prayer. There are about 650 prayers that are listed in the Bible. And there are about 450 recorded answers to prayers. Now, when I do the math, it sounds like there's 200 prayers that didn't go answered. But we don't have the record of every prayer and every answer to prayer. We know that God hears us. We know that, our, that the answers that we get may not be what we expect. The answers that we get may not be in the timing that we expect. 
The first time prayer is mentioned in the Bible is right in the, in the beginning in Genesis. Paul mentions prayers, prayer reports, prayer requests, exhortations to pray about 40 times in his writings. And the Bible lists many different types of prayers or different reasons for prayer. We have a prayer of faith. We have prayers of agreement, which are like corporate prayers. When we have corporate prayer, we call it group prayer. It's when we gather together and lift each other up and we agree with one another in those things. Prayers of agreement, prayers of requests, which can also be called petitions or supplications. So when you see those words in the scripture, it's a request, prayers of thanksgiving. We have there's prayers of worship, prayers of consecration or dedication. We do that when we dedicate a baby. Prayers of consecration, in other words, something that's consecrated or set apart for God's service. Prayers of intercession, which is what you pray for other people in your prayer time. Prayers of imprecation, which <clears throat> imprecatory prayers, which are, uh, there's not too many in the Bible. Those are prayers of God's vengeance on your enemies. So um, I probably would keep that down the bottom of the list in our prayers. <laughs> Praying in the Spirit which is what we are, we are supposed to do as believers. So you see, prayer can involve many different situations, kind of everything that we can think of. There's nothing too large or too small for God to consider, and sometimes our best prayers are our simplest prayers. In Psalm 119, verses 145 and 146, I cry out with my whole heart, Hear me, O Lord. Hear me, I will keep your statutes. And then in verse 46, I cry out to you, save me. I will keep your testimonies. And then in Psalm 141, a psalm of David, I cry out to you, make haste to me. You can just sense the urgency in David's words. Give ear to my voice. It doesn't have to be formal. It doesn't have to be wordy. Heartfelt prayers are really the ones that we see more. And they're encouraging to me because sometimes when I pray, I get stuck on my words. I don't know what to pray. David's cries to the Lord in the Psalms are about as basic as you can get. C.S. Lewis wrote many books. He wrote a book called Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer. And he says, for many years after my conversion, I never used any ready-made prayers except the Lord's Prayer. In fact, I tried to pray without words at all. Have you ever tried that? Without words at all. Not to verbalize the mental acts. Even in praying for others, I believe I tended to avoid their names and substituted mental images of them. I still think prayer without words is best if one can really achieve it. Try that sometime. Try this just quietly sitting or kneeling, whatever posture is most comfortable for you, and just meditate on the Lord. No words. Words themselves are not the important thing. It's the condition of our hearts that God sees. And it might be that there are times when words completely escape us, and there's a remedy for that. See, God knows that sometimes we, don't, we can't think of the words to say. 
In Romans 8, 26 and 27, it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You're stuck on your prayers. You don't know what to pray. Go before the Lord with a, with a contrite heart and just say, Lord, I, just, I don't know what to pray, but I know you do because he knows all things. And the Spirit will intercede for us to the Lord. The Holy Spirit prays for us when we can't. How awesome is that? And there are a lot of misconceptions about prayer. We don't have, we don't have to have a special place or a special posture when we pray, especially since we're encouraged in the Bible to pray continuously. We certainly can't stop what we're doing at any time of day and kneel or raise our hands in order to get into the right position. We need to be able to pray anytime at any place. I'm reminded of a story about three preachers who were discussing just this thing, proper positions for prayer, while a telephone repairman worked nearby. One preacher said, kneeling is definitely the best. And the other one said, no, no, no. I get the best results standing with my hands outstretched to heaven. And the third preacher insisted, you're both wrong. The most effective prayer position is lying prostrate down on the floor. Now, of course, the telephone repairman couldn't contain himself hearing this conversation amongst the preachers. He says, hey, fellas, the best praying I ever did was hanging upside down from a telephone pole. Listen, the passions of our heart will come out in our prayers. Our prayers reveal what's happening in our relationship with God. If our prayers are self-centered and it's all about our wish list, that's an indication where our heart is. If our prayers are sporadic and occasional, it'll reveal that there are other things in our life that are more important than our relationship with the Lord. But if our prayers are heartfelt, others-centered, seeking His will and direction for our lives, if we pray without ceasing, as the Apostle Paul exhorts us, then our passion for prayer and our love for God will be evident. But when we consider prayer, it can be kind of puzzling to us. There are many things to contemplate, and even the most accomplished theologians are stumped on a lot of things when it comes to prayer. For instance, if God is omniscient, means he knows all things, why do we have to pray? We're not telling him anything he doesn't already know, right? And if God grants one person's petition, it might be possible that he's denying someone else's uh, petition, right? Like when the Giants play the Cowboys. I'm sure both of their fans are praying. They both can't win. But today I'm not going to get into the deep theological things about prayer. Uh, Maybe if I do a part two, I'll do that. But this morning we're going to focus on the practical things of prayer and our meaningful time of prayer. But I want to touch on one 
question that both the believer and the unbeliever probably have asked. Why pray? Why pray? For believers, we know the Bible speaks of God's sovereignty. There's nothing too hard for him. Nothing escapes his notice. And the world, before the world was even formed, he declared all things from beginning to end. So do our prayers change anything? And I think that's the wrong question to ask. That's the wrong question. Because our prayers may not change anything, but just as God works out the end of all things, He also works out the means to get to that end. And many times our prayers are the means by which God carries out His perfect will in this world. James 5.16 tells us, Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What does it avail? It avails much. So we know that our prayers may not change anything, but they will reveal. For the skeptic, the question why pray may come from a place of doubt and disbelief. My hope is that if you're listening to this message today, it may lessen some of that doubt and disbelief. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is instructing the disciples regarding common Jewish practices, including giving, praying, and fasting. He tries to get them to see that the most important thing is motivation, what their heart is behind anything we do for the Lord. Our prayer should be an occasion to glorify God, not to be noticed by others, not to be thought of as more holy than someone else. And certainly our prayers should not be self-centered. Jesus wants true righteousness in our hearts when we pray. To set up today's main scripture passage, which is in Matthew, I want to read one, one verse from Luke, because it's covering the same event, but Luke gives us one additional bit of information. In Luke 11, chapter 1, it says, Now it came to pass, as he was praying... In a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Probably the most famous prayer in the Bible is what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer, but it's really better referred to as the Disciples' Prayer. Because this isn't a prayer that the Lord prayed, it's a prayer that uh, he gave instructions to his disciples as a pattern for effective prayer. And notice in that verse in Luke that Jesus was also praying, right? While he was praying, when he ceased, the disciples asked him that question. Very interesting thing that I want you all to remember. But be careful as we go through this not to think of these verses as a kind of a formula, right, for prayer. It's clear that our prayer needs to be from the heart conversation with God. There's nothing magical about the words we use or the position we take that will make our prayers more effective. But Jesus does give us these guiding principles, and we would do well to listen to them. So let's dig in in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. 
And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Jesus is contrasting the empty rituals of the religious leaders with what God really wants from us. We're supposed to be salt and light as Christians. That means we should have an effect on the world around us, but not to bring attention on ourselves. Jesus is telling his disciples about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of that time. See, they were concerned about their own image in the sight of others. They were concerned about their outward appearance. God looks at the heart. They may have waited until a specific time in the day, probably rush hour, and then walked into the street so everyone could see them praying. And they had two faults in regard to their prayer life. Vain glory and vain repetition. Vain glory means that they were seeking God in prayer, but they were also seeking the praise of men. And the praise of men was more important to them. Jesus rebukes them many times in the New Testament. One of these times in Matthew 23, he says in verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! These are the religious leaders that he's talking to. For you are like whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. See, it wasn't about the outward appearance. It was about what was going on in their heart. What was going on in their heart. In verse 6 in Matthew, Matthew 6, Jesus goes on, he says, But when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. This is personal, private prayer. This is telling us, keep our private prayers private. Go into a special place. It doesn't have to be a closet. A prayer clo- Sometimes they're called a prayer closet. Special room. If any of you saw that movie War Room, you saw that that woman had a special room set aside for prayer. You can do that. That's, that's great. Refer to God. This is all about personal. Refer to God in a personal way. Father. And that he's with us. It says he's with us in the secret place. That's awesome. This is a personal relationship. And then the reward that we will receive is not worldly rewards, but it's heavenly. A closer relationship with God is really the immediate reward of of prayer in that way. He goes on in verses six, uh, 7 and 8. When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. The other fault with the prayers of the religious leaders is vain repetition. Many eloquent words. And sometimes you'll hear that, and maybe you'll think to yourself that that's beautiful, but... It, it sounds a little bit um, like holier than now. Repeating words, they don't persuade God. Now we are encouraged to go to Him and be persistent in prayer. 
be persistent in prayer. In other words, don't pray once for something and then think, okay, God heard me and that's it. He wants you to continually go to him. That's, that's fine. But it's for our benefit, not for his, that we go to him on a regular basis. Now I'd like to stop for a second and just focus on this verse. The operative word here, I think, is vain, not necessarily repetition. The v- word vain means empty or fruitless. We don't want to use many words, fancy words, just for the sake of using them. You see, it's again about the heart. And you may find yourself, like I do, repeating a similar prayer before a meal or with others. You can change around the words if you want. It's not about that. But I think the most important thing here is not to make it vain, not to make them empty words. And I know that I was raised in a denomination where their services were filled with repeated prayers, and it got to a point where, for me, they felt vain. They felt empty. It felt like I wasn't even talking to God during those times. Because Jesus prayed in repetitions. In Matthew 26, in verse 44, it says, So he left them, went away, and prayed a third time, saying the same words. So I guess Jesus felt like those were the right words, to pray to the Father, so I'm going to just use them again. And the angels pray repeatedly. It's in Revelation 4.8. It says, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes all around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They do not rest day or night. Those are good words that can be repeated. But know that it's about the heart. It's not about the repeated words. So let's unpack this model prayer. Verse 9. In this manner, Jesus says, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In this manner. This is a guideline. In this way. Covering these bullet points basically, is what Jesus is saying. This is not so that we memorize this prayer, but this is kind of giving us some guidelines to make our prayers more in line with His will, which is what our prayers should be. Our Father indicates intimacy. It indicates a relationship, warm affection and confidence. And like I said before, it's like saying Daddy in our language. Just as our children come to us, right? have that special, intimate relationship with us. But there also needs to be respect, right? We, we kind of expect that for our children, that they would come to us openly, but also respectfully. So hallowing God, it's not a word we use nowadays, but hallowing means to make sacred or bless or to make holy. It's kind of putting God in his rightful spot, honoring him is what hallowing God means. Hallowing His name. There are many verses in the Bible that speak about the name of God. The name of Jesus. What is His name? In in Psalm 148, verse 13, 
Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven. And then in Philippians 2, one of my favorite passages in the scriptures, therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under earth. At the name of Jesus, there's something special about that name. And it's not the name as much as it is what that name means. It's his character. It's his nature. It's who he is. You know, when Moses asked, you know, who shall I say sent me? God said, I am that I am. I am the the everlasting one. I am everything you need. That's what his name means. So when we pray, we pray giving honor to the name of the Lord. Verse 10, it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This part of the prayer teaches us to seek first his kingdom. This is about putting God first, making him the priority in our lives. It reminds us that God is sovereign in all his dealings with us. His will is providential. That means he presides over all the affairs of the earth. But we need to say, not my will, thy will. Not my will, your will, God. Whatever you want is best. We need to remind ourselves of his place and also of our place. Matthew, a little bit further along in this chapter, reminds us of this in verse 33. He says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, the, the verses say before that. Seek first God. Seek first his kingdom. Make that the priority in your life. Make everything you do be about glorifying him. And then he's going to take care of those things. That's a promise. He goes on in verse 11. Give us this day. Give us this day our daily bread. You know, the Israelites in the wilderness, had to gather daily their provision. But it came from God. But he was very careful to instruct them. Don't gather more than what you can use for that day. And then come back the next day and gather again. Why? Well, for two reasons. One, because they didn't want... I don't think God wanted them to hoard it. But I think he also wanted them to keep trusting in him on a daily basis. Each and every day. That's what he desires for us. Teaches us not only moderation and restraint, in other words, don't hoard things, but also teaches us to constantly depend on God's provision for our lives. We can only do that if we continually go to him on a daily basis. Daily meeting with God is a good thing. It's a good thing. He goes on in verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
Our prayer for forgiveness is contingent upon us being forgiving to others. Several times in Scripture, we are told that if we don't forgive, neither will we be forgiven. This word debts is really the word for sins. Because sin is like a debt, isn't it? It's something that's owed. Something's gotta pay, somebody's got to pay for it. The only difference is we can't pay for our own sins. Jesus had to do that work to pay for our sins. It can only be done by a holy, perfect God. But we can and we should forgive one another for those things that, that we do. It, this verse kind of forces us also to look at our own condition and realize that we're no better than anyone else. Just like we need forgiveness, we need to forgive others. Just like others expect forgiveness from us in a relationship, we should offer that forgiveness because look how much we've been forgiven by God. We're all on the same playing field here. It says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that person that might have done something that, you, that kind of irks you, they, they're seeking forgiveness. It's our duty to forgive. Because we know that eventually we're going to do something that irks somebody else, right? It just comes with the territory of being a sinful human being. We want to try to sin less, but we'll never be sinless. One commentator puts it this way, forgiveness is required for those who have been forgiven. We are not given the luxury of holding on to our bitterness toward other people. We're not given that luxury in Scripture. Further on in this, in this chapter, Jesus continues with this. It's not part of this prayer, but just after it, in verses 14 and 15, he says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your, will your Father forgive your trespasses. So our prayer, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other words, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Because we've been forgiven much. And then verse 13, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So now we pray for God's guidance and direction in our daily walk, right? We need to pray this every day. We need to pray this throughout the day. Because there are troubles, there are pitfalls, there are trials, there are temptations that come across our path all the time. And we need the Lord to give us the strength and the empowerment to get through those things. There are situations that come up. There are persecutions that happen. There are testings that we may be subject to that may cause us to fall. People may offend us. Right? We need to show restraint. We need to show self-control. But it's not always, it doesn't always come naturally. When somebody offends you, go to the Lord in prayer before you just react and respond. Lord, don't lead me into temptation. 
Lord, don't allow me to fall or to sin. You, we know that you took all of the persecution on yourself and you never spoke back. You never reviled in return, the Bible says. May we be that way. That's a quick prayer when someone gets on your nerves because you don't want to be led into a, t- a temptation. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. You never forget that it is His kingdom that we should be seeking. We need to be seeking to enlarge and expand and advance the kingdom of God in this world. And remember, if we are not prayed up to do that, we're going to just be just like the rest of the people and advancing our own agenda, not God's agenda, not God's kingdom. Always remember that He has the power to answer prayers. Yours is the kingdom and the power to answer answer prayers and to do all things. Don't doubt God's ability to minister in anything that you bring to Him. Sometimes we hold back, don't we? On some of the things that we bring to the Lord. He doesn't want that. He wants you to bring everything before Him knowing that he can minister in the large and in the small. Nothing's too small for him. Whatever you're dealing with, wherever you need guidance and direction, and in all we do, including our prayer, do it for the glory of God. Now to pull it all together, to pull all of this together, we see this pattern that Jesus gave his disciples and gave us. But prayer is nourishment to us, to our souls. Prayer is the way that a child of God nourishes their spirit. When a person is born again, we receive the spirit of God within us. We can either starve it or we can nourish it. It's up to us. Prayer is the way we nourish our life. Our way of looking at prayer may not even be found in the New Testament. Sometimes we look at prayer as a means of getting those things that we want, kind of that wish list. The Bible's idea of prayer is that we get to know God better. As we get more more, uh, into an intimate relationship with Him. Understand Him more. Spend time with Him like you would a friend or a spouse. Somebody you want to get to know better. Spend time with that person. And we've probably heard that it's said, prayer changes things. I think a better way to see the effect of prayer is that prayer changes me. Prayer changes me. God has designed prayer so that it alters the way we look at our circumstances. We should have a different way of looking at our problems, We should have a different way of looking at our sicknesses, employment situations, relationship issues. See, we need prayer so that it changes us in how we look at these things. It can change the way we look at everything in our lives. So that pattern for prayer, as we go through this prayer, our Father in Heaven speaks about that relationship 
hallowed be your name, speaks about worship. Your kingdom come, your will be done, speaks about his sovereignty. Forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, speaks about his mercy. Lead us not into temptation, speaks about his guidance and direction in our lives, which we need so desperately. Deliver us from the evil one. That's freedom, isn't it? That's freedom. We know, the Bible says, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We know he can deliver us from those things. Pray for deliverance. That's freedom in your life. And then yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory brings us back to worshiping the Lord. God should always be the focus of our prayers. Many times we make ourselves the focus. But this, this method, this, this pattern, this, this guideline should change that perspective. And we should be more habitual about prayer. Make it part of our daily life. Paul says pray, can, pray without ceasing. Right? Make it part of your daily life. Don't be afraid to pray in public. You know, pray at a restaurant when you're, before you have a meal. You'd be surprised how people respond to that. The waiter or the waitress. I, sometimes Claire and I will be praying at a meal and I feel this hovering figure because <laughs> the waiter or waitress would, just, would be waiting for us to finish. But it's, it's, it's neat. Don't be, don't be ashamed of that. Before I close, which will be a, about five minutes, I do want to mention one other aspect of prayer. And that is the kind of prayer that we do here on a regular basis at Calvary Chapel. This is the praying for one another. The model prayer that Jesus gave his disciples and us was more for personal prayer. Right? We, don't, we wouldn't necessarily use that pattern when we pray for one another. In James 5, 14 and 15, this is kind of our guiding verse for praying for one another. It says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, we encourage you, as James did, to call upon the leaders here, to lift you up in prayer. But let me clarify a few things. First of all, the elders of the church are appointed to oversee the spiritual well-being of the body. And we take that responsibility very seriously. If you ask us to pray, we will pray. But we don't have any special power, okay? We partner with you to take your needs to the Lord. Just as you come to us in faith, we're faithful to do what we're called to do. Secondly, James mentions anointing them with oil. The oil is not magical, okay? It smells good. Uh, Some have frankincense, some have myrrh, nice herbs. Uh, It's probably olive oil. The oil is not magical. 
You see, the, in the original passage, it was written to a first century uh, Middle Eastern culture. Uh, there wasn't medical care to speak of. Olive oil was used for medicinal purposes. Um, it does have some qualities. I'm not an expert. Um, soothing qualities. Um, so it does speak, the Bible does speak of those things. It's also used symbolically in the Bible to represent the presence of the Holy Spirit. But the emphasis in James here is not on, is, is not on the oil, but it's on the prayer. So let's get that in order. And it's also not a promise of complete and permanent healing. We know that. God can and does heal. He may use doctors. He may use medications. He may heal apart from those things. But it's God who brings that healing to our bodies. Or not. Because it says in verse 15, the Lord will raise him up, right? The Lord will raise him up. This is speaking of a future time when all our ailments will be gone. There won't be any more pain. There won't be any more suffering. This is a promise for all believers. And then he goes on and says, and your sins will be forgiven. Isn't that the most important thing? Isn't that the most important thing? Yes, many of us suffer with constant pain or, or medical conditions or we've gotten diagnosis and we want the Lord to touch us. And so we are faithful to pray for that. But remember, the forgiveness of sins is the ultimate promise of the Lord. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.